Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Faux, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hey everybody, this is the Helping Friendly Podcast. I'm here with Matt. What's up, Matt? Hey, hey, how's it going, man? Good. Matt and I are solo tonight. Jonathan and Brad are vacationing, traveling all over with a lot of people, I and, think. Is that right? I think Brad is, yeah, he's like in an RV uh, somewhere in the country. I've seen him all sorts of different places. Lots of people traveling right now. It's kind of cool yeah, getting out and is. seeing parts of the country, doing things they wouldn't normally do. So that's cool. Yeah, and I did joke about this, but it's cool that Brad got out of Arizona right before all the coronavirus cases like started surging so he's safe in maine if anyone's wondering jonathan is not traveling jonathan's in virginia celebrating his anniversary so everyone should go on twitter and tell him happy anniversary so a lot of a lot of happy things happening today for sure um so we're going to talk about some cool music as usual but matt i gotta tell you i went i think the longest i've ever gone without shaving um over the past couple weeks and rachel actually made me 
shave eventually, but I had like legit, I had legit stubble. It wasn't, you know, a beard or, or mustache, but, um, it was, it was pretty legit stubble and I was pretty proud of myself. When I saw you at the beach, was I, was I like a little bit on my way there? You were maybe a little bit on your way there. I just think it's funny that like for you, several weeks of not shaving results in stubble <laughs> because like several, several hours for me without shaving re- results in stubble, <laughs> right, se- exactly. several weeks is like a career change. Um, so <laughs> exactly. So- so anyway, once I did, once I was required to shave, I went, I got a new shipment of Harry's razors and I shaved and it was awesome. And we should tell you all that Harry's has a special offer. You can get a free trial set if you go to harrys.com slash HFPod. And Matt, you, you've talked before on the show about the, the multi-use of these razors. Um, they're, my wife uses them as well. And, um, I think, I think they're good for men and women. I think so. And, um, one of the other things that I don't know, we brought up their, uh, shaving cream is awesome. Um, I'm not one to usually use shaving cream because I shave so little part of my face, even when I'm like grooming for work and stuff, which is, it feels like a, a whole lifetime ago. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's like, I've used it a couple times recently because when I've had to clean myself up, I'm cleaning it up from like weeks of not shaving, uh, now. And so I've used it and it's like amazing. It makes your face feel like super, super nice afterwards. Yeah. So go to harrys.com slash HF pod, get a free trial set and, um, check out what Harry's is doing. I think it's good stuff and um, we want you to check it out. All right. So one more sponsor to tell you about quickly, Section 119. Um, Matt and I both, I think we we all have masks actually from Section 119. Yeah, that's right. And um, we've gotten to this sort of sign of the times where like we're losing our masks and then now we have to order more. It's sort of like, you know, like pre-coronavirus, it would be like, your sunglasses or your keys or whatever. And I'm like, where's your donut mask? And my wife's like, uh, I left it in the car. And I'm like, no, you didn't. You, so, hey, spoiler alert. You left it in Matt's car. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we came home from the beach. And I went, okay, one mask, two mask, three mask, four. Hey, wait, how did one of the masks multiply itself? <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So we're losing masks and I'm sure that's happening to everyone who's listening. So if you go to section119.com, if you use the promo code HFPod, you can get a discount. I think their masks are the most comfortable masks that I've had, but they also have a bunch of other stuff like shirts and belts and shorts and bathing suits and boxers that you might've seen John Fishman wearing in Mexico and things like that. So they got a lot of good stuff and we're really, really happy to have their support. Absolutely. And still, I know we say it every time I get recognized, like almost every time I go out, uh, people, yeah. people love the donut mask. So yeah, make, make a fashion statement, you know, and make a friend and make a friend from a distance. Yes, exactly. So, exactly. So go to section 119.com, use the promo code HF pod. Uh, Matt, we had, a, we have a pact. I think that you said <laughs> that if I don't cut my hair until the next fish show that you'll give me a hundred dollars. Is that the wording? My recollection of what I said to you was I will pay you a hundred dollars if you don't cut your hair until the next time you see fish. So there was, there was multiple layers in there. It's like, you gotta, it's not just when fish plays, you have to go and see the show and no, no cutting of the hair whatsoever. (laughs) Wait, you have to, you wait, repeat the, repeat the phrase again. Uh, I said, I will pay you a hundred dollars if you don't cut your hair until you see fish again. Okay. Fair. Okay. So what happened last week is that my wife 
trimmed my beautiful mullet a little bit. And Matt says the bet's off. Now, I didn't cut my hair, so someone else did. But I also didn't go to a salon, and I also cut a section of my hair. I didn't get a haircut, as it were. So, dear listeners, we need you to weigh in. Is Matt right, and is it off, or is it still on? Um, Tweet at us or send us messages and email. It's very important because Matt thinks it's off, right? I think it's off. And this is also important because Brian Brinkman of Beyond the Pond also said that he was going to pay $100. And our pa- our friend Patrick also said uh, that he had $100 on it as well. So I think this is, I mean, it's, this is more than just like a single $100 bet. There's multiple hundreds of dollars. So, so think about the wording and think about the fact that I just, I had my mullet trimmed by a family member. But otherwise, my hair is still growing. So I want everyone to weigh in um, because we're not going to resolve this ourselves. Okay, should we move on to the episode? Let's do it. Okay, so we are talking today about Tab 1.0. And I would say that this episode has been in discussion for two years, maybe, Matt, maybe more. I was thinking about it earlier before we logged on here. And in like 2016... When we first met in person, you asked me for a list of ideas for the show. And I'm almost positive this was on the list that I gave you. And I think like a bunch of times, like a lot of the large percentage of the time in the past couple of years that we have all gotten into a conversation about what should we do for our next episode? Somebody says, hey, we should do tab 1.0. And then we just don't do it for one reason. It was like, Tab 1.0 and Big Cypress, and we know what happened with Big Cypress. Um, <laughs> this is not sure. going to be a, a five-part uh, series about Tab, um, the original Tab, but we are going to talk about uh, this early era of the Trey Band. And one thing we should get out of the way uh, here is the name of this episode, because there's been a little bit of internal debate about that, and it's slightly, it's a slightly tongue-in-cheek, a lot of debate. It's a slightly tongue-in-cheek name for the episode because you could get into a whole debate about like was the tab the tray tour which was really not tab in 1999 was that tab 1.0 i would say maybe that was like a beta version of the group and this is when it started out and then it's like when does it stop and for me there was a clear delineation and blah 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 but we're just sort of in a slightly tongue-in-cheek jokey way calling this tab 1.0 meaning the old tab with the, the big band and all the horns and before like natalie and james were in the band and there was a whole bunch of other people and stuff. So we, we should say to that end that the 99 stuff is incredible. Oh yeah. It's amazing. I mean, amazing. So maybe we should do a separate episode on that because that's like kind of the most, possibly the most raging Trey guitar of all time. It is, but this this band is. Um, it, there's so much more to it, and mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously, it's the same kind of rhythm section, and it's kind of grew out of that first tour. But by this point, there's like you know, when it starts out and we'll talk about this kind of tour by tour, but there's like its own repertoire of music. Um, you know, the band has been fleshed out. There's a horn component now, which is very 
very key. Um, so it feels like this this time in the band's history was um, a, a you know far gone era. But um, it was it was pretty cool, kind of listening to this stuff and, and thinking about it. And I think it's it's important to note, like in terms of why like why have we always wanted to, to cover this stuff? Um, a lot of people today would associate Tab or have certain feelings about Tab. Um, you know, a lot of people don't dig Tab. They think it's a little bit too like adult contemporary, maybe some of Trey's um, songs that are a little bit too kind of like, you know, emotional or whatever for fish kind of get, get relegated to this. And um, they don't jam, you know, you're not looking for like type two jams and stuff. It's very straightforward stuff. And that's all that's fair. Um, I will say that I, I love that band. Um, I don't really travel to see them, but at any time I'm within an hour of them, I'll probably go see them. And I always have a great time. Um, but this band back in like 2001 to 2003, it was a whole different beast and they jammed hard. They jammed long. They had a, a lot going on uh, different textures and things like that. Um, so if you've never gone back to that era, if you're a newer fan and you just assume that it was always the same, this will hopefully enlighten you to some of the, you know, stuff about that band and, and the way that it was back then. And maybe if you're a fan who, you know, was into it back then, cause people really dug it back then. Um, and then kind of put it on the back burner once fish was back and put all your focus on fish. It's a nice reminder of how great that band was at that point in time and kind of where it slotted into, uh, into Trey's history. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it's interesting because this period, particularly the 2001 era, I mean, it's really hard to find the shows. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that this is a fairly overlooked part of, you know, the broader fish, you know, fish in quotes, history because you can't just go on like, you know, the live fish app or nugs or re-listen or (laughs) you have to find your special app. And, and those of us who have had the, you know, files and stuff over time, like you, you, you'll get it somehow, but it's not something that you can just pull up and not something that would come up in most people's rotation. I feel like this is like fairly overlooked. Like I had forgotten a bunch of stuff that we're going to talk about. Do you feel like it's overlooked or do you think like maybe I just forgot? Oh, for sure. Which is why I think it's a, a good for us to talk about this because um, it's you really don't hear people talking about this stuff a whole lot. Um, when you know back in the day, I mean, a this was kind of the you know the only show or the main show in town for the, for us at the time, so it got a lot more attention. Um, but I mean, like people really really dug it back then. And there was a lot of like, you know, sharing of the shows and, um, analysis of what was happening and kind of tracing the tour night after night that you don't even get with tab anymore. I feel like there's a lot of times when like Trey plays a show now with tab and like, I don't hear anything about it that day or that night. And it's like the next day you read it right up in jam base. And it's like, Oh wow. I didn't even realize Trey was on tour right now. It's true. It is, it is overlooked and you'll, you'll hear once in a while, like people in the town, he goes to Austin and like someone, you know, you know, in Austin, it's like, I'm going to see Trey, you know, it's true that it it just doesn't, um, it doesn't rise to the level for a lot of fans, but it should, because I, I agree with you about the current Trey band. I think it's awesome. And it's so, especially live, it's so fun, you know, and it can, you can forget that because you people live to see fish, you know, in terms of this community, but man, really, really, really good stuff. And it's really fun. It's always so much fun. Like there's not, there's not a lot of dark, weird jams. It's just fun, you know, and this starts it. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, of course with everything, you know, there's tough guys online who like to 
talk shit about the band and oh i'm too cool and i won't go see this band it's a waste of my time or whatever they don't jam but like you know i mean i i was in manhattan for business on this past january they were playing at the cap i hopped on the metro north went up there and it was a jam-packed show and people were really getting down so i mean people still do have a great time i think you know that band just doesn't get quite the attention that that fish gets for for obvious reasons so so we will not be talking about 99 again because people are going to keep asking us why why didn't you talk about spring 99 so it was awesome but we're not going to talk about it because it's not tap right right and and i think there's an important distinction here um what we're going to do here is kind of kind of look tour by tour because the band evolved with each tour there were new components there were new members of the band each time um and over the first kind of several tours it got refined into something that um by the summer of 2002 i think was like a seriously well-oiled machine and they were um a kick-ass band um and it and to kind of go back to that first tour uh which was the the winter of 2001 february of 2001 um this is a time when fish went away for a couple of years and there was i think a lot of not confusion but people were worried i mean the the, the party line was like maybe they weren't going to come back we all kind of thought they would come back but um so there was a lot of excitement just to go out and see trey and see what's appeared to be kind of like a new step in in his career at that point yeah it's important to note that like this is you know winter 2001 of course is the first tour of the post 1.0 fish world so people were curious about what was going on and um there wasn't just yeah now you look at the set list and you're like oh yeah they took a break from late 2000 to late 2002 but at the time it was like yeah maybe they're gone maybe they'll be maybe they'll be broken up forever and it's interesting to listen to these shows with that in mind that like this was this was trey's main project at the time yeah, and the other thing, just for me personally, before we kind of get into the first tour here, um, the first time that I experienced uh, any member of Fish live and kind of my induction into the Fish scene was seeing Trey Band at the Man uh, in August of 2001. So um, this era holds a, a special place in my heart um, because, you know, as I've said on the show before, I was kind of had been getting into Fish for a couple of years leading up to this, was disappointed that right when I was on the precipice of seeing shows, they they went away. So getting to see Trey play live and uh, it was just like a, you know, a huge deal for me. And I was following that winter tour really closely as well so um uh it's it's really fun for me to go back to to this time that's cool i don't think i saw any of these shows during the 2001 tour so we should we should talk about this so we can educate me and and the audience so they started in early 2001 right at uh in i guess played for most of the year i mean on and off but they they started at the beginning in february of 2001 in boston but matt what was who was who was in the band so this is the the you've got um the trio from the the beta version that we mentioned before the 99 version which is um trey tony markellis and russ lawton um which had come out of the the eight foot fluorescent tubes experiment from from the year before um and then they add the first round of horns. Uh, so a uh, good friend of the band, Dave the Truth Grippo, uh, plays saxophone. And then two young up-and-comers who, at that point, pr- people didn't really know, uh, was Jennifer Hartswick and 
Annie Moreau's. Um, it's kind of crazy to think at that point, people were like, who is this young girl uh, playing on stage with Trey? Even crazier to think that when she started, I think she was about the same age, maybe a year or two older than what Natalie was when she eventually started mm. playing with Trey. Andy was also um, a youngster too. I mean, they're, they're all within like our age range. Um, I think they're, you know, maybe a year or two, like probably between our ages, um, mm -hmm. a year or two older than me. And, um, so this is the first time we've got horns. Um, and, uh, it, as I mentioned that the band will expand later, we'll add, um, more people. Um, there was some links back to the old, uh, shows because Trey tended to do like an acoustic mini set, during these, um, at somewhere, you know, usually in the encore or something like that. Um, the funny thing when I look back on this and I did a bunch of listening over the last month or so is it seems to me that the goal of this band, um, was kind of twofold one to kind of woodshed material that Trey was playing a lot. And I think he and Tom were writing a lot of stuff around this, this period in time. Um, and then also just to give Trey an opportunity with a band kind of like the 99 tour to just shred guitar, not have to worry about, is he taking too much of the spotlight or anything? Cause it's his show. It's his band. Um, and the, the funny thing to me kind of bringing that full circle is th that's kind of what I think of for tab now. Right. It's like he'll test out material with tab. Maybe it makes to fish. Maybe it stays in the tab world. And it's also just an opportunity for him to get out and not, you know, not doing these big 35 minute jams with the full band and stuff. It's just like if he wants to play sand for 15 minutes and tear the shit out of it, then that's what he's going to do. Right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And this, the, the show that started it all, um, the 20, 21st of February at the Orpheum in Boston, there's one night there and they debuted a bunch of songs. I mean, a lot of songs that you would hear at a trade show today, including Push On Till The Day, Burlap Second Pumps, uh, Drifting, Ether Sunday. I mean, so many. And to me, this whole era really was like about will it go around in circles, you know, starting with the 99 stuff that just the, the soloing, but going back to the show and, and we should say that the jam streams app is the best way to, to listen to these shows and good for them for like getting these shows on that app because that's, that's really like the main place you can find them to stream, right? Yeah. I've got a hard drive full of this stuff. Um, because just from, you know, ripping CDs that I had back in the day and stuff over the years, but just for traveling around, driving, traveling to the beach and all this kind of stuff and trying to listen to some of this stuff on the go, uh, that app was like a savior. So shout out to, uh, whoever it is that runs that jam streams. Yeah. Jam streams. So this, this show, and, and we're going to jump around a little bit and just talk about, you know, different shows that we listen to, but 23 minute sand in this uh, 221.01 Orpheum show, and it reminds me a lot of Cypress, which makes sense, right? Because it was, a, it was, you know, not that long, not that long after, but um, but with horns, which is really cool. And that's uh, there's not a lot of soloing in this jam, which is weird because when I think about this this era of Trey solo, I think about him shredding, and it's interesting that some of these jams are a little bit more ambient atmospheric but like with horns you know which is kind of a cool combo
Yeah, they, they and the horns um, at this point were largely relegated to charted parts that were like parts of the song or like that they had kind of set as like a re-entry point from the jam um, or like people, you know, being featured and doing solos. Um, we'll see as throughout the next couple of tours, that'll change and the role of the horns in the band kind of evolves, but they were really kind of like side players at this point um, and didn't get too involved most of the time when Trey was uh, was soloing. They just kind of let him go. Yeah, so they played basically February and March, right? A handful of shows um, throughout the Northeast and then ended back up at uh, in Atlanta, the Fox Theater. Did you see any evolution? Like you, you listened to a bunch of this over just the course of, you know, from mid, whatever it was, mid-February to early March. I mean, it's not a lot of shows, but did, did they all feel kind of similar to you or do you feel like they they changed over the course of those handful of shows? I think the evolution is in the material, um, there was a lot of songs that were being tried out at this point, and some of which we won't even make it to the summer. Um, there's also kind of these themes of the new material, which is like every night they're debuting a couple songs, which mm-hmm. is like um, you've got like nothing but a G thing, nothing but an E thing at the barbecue, at the gazebo. Um, so like looking back, and some of these became other pieces eventually. Um, uh, but um, they... Uh, they're kind of like testing out these these new snippets of music that Trey is kind of writing and a lot of it has a new feeling. So I think it's him just kind of like testing this stuff out, seeing what sticks with the audience, what doesn't. Um, and then every couple songs you just get like a sand or something like that to just really kind of, you know, get everybody's butts moving. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and the fact that like, you know, this was the first tour where you heard um, Burlap Second Pumps and Push On Till The Day and, you know, some of these songs that really became kind of jam staples for, for tab is pretty cool. And, and all these shows do, as Matt said, kind of mix in the the solo acoustic, you know, segment of some kind and some stuff with, you know, where Trey would do it acoustic with, with Russ or, you know, whatever. I mean, a lot of mixing it up quite a bit and, and a lot of covers too, that, um, they wouldn't, he wouldn't do later, right? Santana and Bob Dylan and a lot of others that, that would be mixed in there. And in Richmond on 228, there was a Dave Matthews sit-in um, for a couple couple acoustic songs. So there, there's a lot going on here, but they kind of took a break after this Atlanta show on March 5th until July 4th when they came to higher ground and then kicked off the summer tour. Similar, same, um, same lineup, right, for the summer tour? No. Uh, so the, the lineup changes for the summer tour. Um, oh, cause Ray came in. Yeah. So now, so in, in that first lineup, you didn't have keys at all. Um, it was still like the power trio and then the horn. So there was six, uh, six members of the band, a sextet at that point. Um, and then we go to the summer and we add Ray, although, um, Ray sits out about half the tour. I don't, I can't remember exactly why he had some sort of pre-existing engagement or something like that. Um, and the, the condolence prize there is that John Medeski, uh, played with the band. And I remember at this point, this is another one of those eras where like people didn't know who Ray was except for probably Mm -hmm. Burlington heads who had seen him playing around town and stuff. Um, so I remember the prevailing feeling at the time being like, who's this Ray guy? Get, just keep Medeski in the band. Like he should be the (laughs) organ player. Um, 
and those uh, so he Medeski played on the tour for Riverport through Deer Creek um, and man there's some crazy stuff in those shows I think it's like in Alpine Valley there's one point uh, maybe in Burlap Second Pumps where like um, tr- it's just Trey and Medeski for like five or six minutes just like going at it toe to toe there's so much there actually let's just we're gonna play just a little bit of that at, at this moment There's some amazing stuff, and, and hearing Medeski kind of backing up the Trey band, you know, I, I kind of forgot that. And I think that's another good indication of this tour being sort of like, or this era just being a little bit overlooked, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's in terms of the other evolutions of the band at this point, um, so a lot of that early material from the winter tour gets dropped. Um, they start focusing on more on the songs that are going to stick around. A lot of those covers are dropped. Um, set lists wind up being relatively similar from night to night because of that, just kind of shuffled into different orders. Um, but they start to have longer jams where the other members of the band beyond Trey are contributing a little bit more. So it's this era where you start to see, for example, the horns like leave the stage, huddle up and play like come up with a line to back up Trey's solo and then like re-enter the stage and come in and, and there's little simple things. This will get more, um, uh, you know, complicated, um, for subsequent tours. But at this point it's the way that I would describe it. It's, as opposed to what we're about to see for 2002 and 2003, it's still very like groove, like single groove oriented. Like think of like the, the big Cypress sand was like a really good example of how like that's very similar to 
a lot of these jams um, in that they'll get into one groove, one bass line, one rhythm, even one repeating horn line, and they just dig at that for 10, 15, 20 minutes while Trey just like solos on top of it. Um, and it's cool, uh, but you got to be along for the ride if you're going to watch that. Like if you're, if you're the type of person who gets bored by, you know, something like Afrobeat or Krautrock or something like that, that's just like super, super, super repetitive, you're maybe not going to like these early tours as much as um, some of the later ones. So, so they, they started, as I mentioned, July 4th in Burlington and, and ended this summer tour in SPAC, um, August 5th and, and managed to, to make a pretty good little run there, you know, through kind of a lot of the same venues that, that fish would hit on a summer tour, including, as we mentioned, Alpine Riverport and, uh, Red Rocks and the Greek. So they were, they were, they were touring for sure. I didn't see them during this time. And, um, it's interesting because, the way I see this period is how I saw it at the time, which is like I was graduating from college and going to grad school that summer. But like, why wouldn't I have gone to see Trey Band? You know, like I just didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder if a lot of fans did like stopped seeing, you know, fish related stuff when they went on hiatus. So people who are listening, let us know, because I feel like I could be in the minority, but that's definitely how I see it. Um, well, I think, I, I think you are, I think, because one of the things that I wanted to point out and, and before we get too far off, I, I did, uh, we skipped one addition to the band. Um, in addition to Ray, Russell Remington joined the group as well. So they, ju- they jumped from six to eight. Um, and, uh, that addition, Russell Remington plays a, a couple of different instruments. So it adds a little bit more texture to the, to the horn section, um, and, and adding some woodwinds and things like that. Um, but to get back to what you were saying a second ago, um, the, one of the things that I think is, is really interesting. If you look at that versus later Trey shows when fish was back, even like two years later, um, this summer is the first summer without fish since they formed basically. Mm-hmm. And, they were playing like Trey was playing the venues that fish would have played that summer. They were playing sheds and they weren't jam packed. They weren't sold out, you know, maybe like red rocks was and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, they were pretty full. I mean, I, you know, my, like I said, my first show was at the man, which holds about 15,000 people. There was probably 12,000 people there. I mean, this Mm -hmm. was like a big, like shakedown lot scene and like, you know, big, big crowd. The pavilion was packed. The lawn was pretty crowded. Um, and you know, I mean, they're playing like the Greek red rocks, Alpine Valley, deer Creek, Polaris, Lakewood, Merriweather. I mean, this sounds like a fish tour. Um, and that happened the following summer as well. So, um, that was kind of like what it seemed to me was that like the majority of the fish scene was like, oh, okay, well, Trey's like the next best thing. We're just going to go and do that. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, well, I want other people to please, you know, weigh in and let us know because we need to know. But um, Matt, what are what are some of your highlights from this summer in terms of jams? Um, things that stick out, I, I won't call out individual songs, but, um, shows that I remember going back to and that I kind of use as my research talking about this, um, tour, um, the, uh, second night of Red Rocks, um, was actually circulated officially as a recording. Uh, Kevin Shapiro seeded that out to like E-Tree and everything like that. So that was one of those kind of like, I think to build up interest in the band, a lot mm-hmm. of people had that, that CD. Um, uh, 
uh, I mentioned the Alpine Valley show before, which was, I think, kind of the highlight of the Medeski um, part of the tour. Yeah. And then um, the uh, the man show that I was at, uh, I, I'll give a shout out to that. Um, really interesting to go back and think about it in terms of like what was the very first song that I saw Trey play, and it was in the Wee Wee Hours, um, also no, known as In the Night, uh, which is a Professor Longhair tune. Shout out mm-hmm. to uh, Festival Circuit, uh, a podcast that RJ and I are working on right now about the history of music in New Orleans and the New Orleans Jazz Festival. Um, which we put a little bit of that song into that we podcast, did. but it was, it was funny though, to me, because like, you know, this song, it, it's not like a typical Trey band song that's cover. It's a very like new Orleansy kind of like shuffle old timey kind of cover. Um, and I remember like the, the show starting, everybody standing there and it starts out with Ray playing on piano, like, and then like the band came in and everybody just started like, dancing so hard the second the band came in. that was like, Oh, okay. I'm like, this guy's my, my dude. And these are my people and it's, it's all happening. But to, <laughs> to, to think that it was like, it wasn't like, you know, tweezer or yam or like yeah. character zero. It was like this old <laughs> professor long hair tune that they were, this big band was covering was, was pretty funny. That's awesome. There's, um, there's a lot of highlights and, and I think we should, we should talk about a couple other, I mean, one thing I just want to mention is the, the seven thirty one show from Virginia beach, was with Carl Gerhard on on trumpet for the whole show, and there was a Jabu second set opener and a jam into we'll go around in circles, and all of that is just amazing, really fantastic. I would just say that there's the Fish.net set list for that says that during that show Trey or before the show started, Trey introduced Carl and noted that the gig was exactly ten years to the day since the last time the Giant Country Horns performed together which was actually wrong because it was like, you know, four days off, but that's fine. He was, he was in the, in the zone and in the, in the right area. Should, should people go to the, the man show and just listen to it front to back? Or do you feel like this is the kind of tour where you jump around and kind of listen to jams, listen to segments? I, I think with a few exceptions, um, one of them being, you should probably listen to like a Ray show, like a really good Ray show. And that man show or Jones beach is, is a really good one to listen to. You should probably also listen to a Medeski show or two because those are um, pretty unique, but you could pick a lot of different shows from this tour and get a, a much of the same experience just by listening to one show front to back. Once again, their, their repertoire isn't so huge that their the set lists are varying widely, uh, from night to night. Um, it's a lot of the same songs that are getting jammed long and they're getting jammed long in the same way because 
you know, for example, like Burlap Sack and Pumps or Mr. Completely, if you've heard the groove at the beginning of it, they just keep that going. And whether it's 15 minutes or 25 minutes, it's just, it's a lot of the same. Um, so, you know, if you were going to go to one show, uh, from this entire tour, I would recommend that Red Rocks one just because it's a really, it's a, you know, soundboard recording and you can, um, kind of catch the nuances, uh, in, in all the music. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So in the fall of 2001, Trey went on Oysterhead tour. So, so that's happening as well here. And that's, you know, I mean, as everyone knows, trade never takes a break as far as any of us know. It's just like, it's constant. So he's got, he's got tab, he's got oyster head. And then in 2002, before fish comes back at MSG on new year's Eve, there's a new, new lineup and another, another tab tour. There's two more tab tours. There's one in the summer and there's one in the fall. We're going to kind of talk about them together because musically and lineup wise and everything like that, they're really kind of one in the same. Um, there's not a lot of difference, but the other thing that happens, it's a key event right before the summer tour. Um, Besides uh, adding a couple of members to the band, which is A, going to be Ciro uh, on percussion, and Peter Affelbaum, uh, who had previously been in the Cosmic Country Horns, um, that turns the band into a 10-piece, a dectet, um, which is, in my mind, a like, that's... This is this is what everything has been leading to, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this lineup, which continues for a couple of tours, the material that they have here, and it's all kind of encompassed in um, this spring at the end of April, uh, the album Trey Anastasio is released. And that kind of solidifies like a lot of the f- key songs that they're going to focus on. You have one more round of like some of the stuff from 2000 kind of going away. They don't, they've either turned that stuff into a new song or they've just gotten rid of it completely. Um, and the band comes together. Now the key change in their sound at this point, besides the new members, which are, are, I mean, Ciro just adds so much to the band and he adds a lot of new types of textures and sounds to the band. The big difference to me, though, is that um, Trey, for this summer tour, introduces a series of hand signals so that he can kind of conduct the band on the fly. And this is something that... um, you know, a lot of the great band leaders like James Brown did this, Prince did this, Springsteen does it to mm-hmm. a certain extent. Um, trays were f- interesting because 
like Prince would like spin around and do a split and like throw a covert signal to the band that they would all have to catch really closely. Um, trays were like very obvious, big hand signals to the band. So if you were playing along and you were going to a bunch of shows, you could actually kind of figure out what he was doing with the band. Um, and th- what this results in is that they um, the band is able to jam along with Trey. And so you don't have burlap sack and pumps being 25 minutes of the same groove. You have burlap sack and pumps, which starts out as five minutes of this groove, and then Trey starts changing things up. And the way, the quote from that era that I think kind of really well encompasses the way that um, he used this was he talked about being inspired by Frank Zappa, who used to do a similar thing where he would put it, he'd actually put his guitar down. They would be playing a song. Let's say they were playing like, you know, Muffin Man or I Am the Slime or something like that. He would sort of conduct the band, get all of the pieces in the right place dynamically and groove wise and everything like that. And then he would say, okay, and he'd pick up his guitar and he'd start soloing over this groove that he had built into the band. And that's what Trey really starts doing with the band. And it takes their jamming to what you might almost call like a type two level where they're, they're departing the song and coming up with these amazing things on the fly. One of the other, I think, notable things about this is that in, well, in 2002, they opened on the West coast, which is always an, an interesting choice. And they had openers, you know, this was another thing that was sort of a departure from, the fish world is that they had openers every, not, not every night, but a lot, you know, and they, they had spearhead and, um, a lot of other bands opening, which I think is cool, but just so different from fish. You know, you have Los Lobos and spearhead opening in, in Vegas. Um, and you know, Michael Franti comes up and, and plays. And that's just, I wonder if Trey found that to be an interesting mix up. I mean, I'm, I'm curious what was going through Trey's head at this time. You know what I mean? Like the band that, as you said, had played pretty much straight through for what, 17 years is like not, not playing anymore, 15 years, whatever it was. So do you think he was like, yeah, this is cool. We have this whole different thing now. Like we have openers, we have people coming out and playing. I'm playing acoustic guitar sometimes. I'm conducting the band. I mean, I, I know that he pretty consistently pushes himself in terms of innovation, but what do you think is going through Trey's head during like this 2002 period, especially leading up to what happens at the end of the year, which is fish gets back together. Yeah. The, I, I totally forgot about all these openers. Um, and it was mostly around like a couple shows, like these Thomas and Mac shows. I, I really am. There was something about them. Like there was a reason why they had openers and I can't remember what it was. Um, so if anybody else was there and you're listening to this, let us know. Um, but like, yeah, Spearhead and Los Lobos one night and then the Roots and Antibalas the next night, which is actually, that's a killer lineup, Roots, Antibalas and Tab. Um, and I'm trying to remember, maybe it was just so that they could fill a bigger venue for two nights and kind of turn it into a destination. But I remember there being a lot of hype around the shows because Paige sat in. Mm-hmm. Um, the first night, uh, which was like a huge, huge deal. Um, this was a summer where the other three members of fish all sat in with Trey band at different times. And those shows at the time were like revered as like the special shows of the tour, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. for, for obvious reasons. 
But I mean, in terms of what's going through Trey's head, I think he just was trying to do something new. Um, I think he was scratching an itch that kind of touched into different parts of his music that, you know, his, his musical love and preferences that he'd never gotten to really get into, like the Zappa thing, like, you know, taking it in a jazzy way and having horns, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's different from fish. And I, I think he probably enjoyed the freedom to do what he wanted to do. I don't know if that's really part of what they were trying to do at this point with fish's hiatus. Um, I know there's obviously other reasons why they should have taken a break, um, but it seems like Trey just needed to kind of work out these other muscles um, and, you know, expand his musical horizons. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think it, it, it definitely worked. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's hard to know, you know, and there's no reason to really, really litigate what was going through Trey's mind because it, it ended up with some really cool music that that definitely laid the foundation for, you know, what tab is today. Um, there was, there's just some really interesting stuff that happened during that year. But, um, Matt, do you, did you see any shows that tour? Yeah, I did. And this I think is my favorite of their tours. Um, I had, I, I only saw two shows on this tour, but they were in what I would consider basically like the peak of, uh, the peak of that early tab, uh, band, um, there was a weekend when they played, uh, Thursday night. It was, this was the end of the tour Thursday night. They played at, um, PNC and Holmdale. Um, that version of sand is on the album plasma. The next night they played in Camden and we went to that show. Uh, and it was insane. It was amazing. Um, the next night they were playing in Merriweather. And so we made the, the Camden show was so good that we made kind of just a last minute decision to drive down to Merriweather the next morning. Um, I have a crazy, crazy story about my friend's car breaking down and it was an insane time trying to get there, but the show was amazing. That night speaks to a woman is on plasma. And then that was Saturday, and then Sunday night was Bonnaroo. This was the weekend of the very first Bonnaroo. And their show at Bonnaroo uh, to close their tour was, like, legendary. Um, the version of Night Speaks to a Woman, I believe, is something like 45 minutes long. Um, Three songs, second set. Three song second set is it was really 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 amazing and and one of the cool things is by this point the um, hand signals had evolved to the point where a lot of people who were kind of going along and touring with the band and stuff knew the hand signals and so Trey picked up on that and he start he in the middle of this version of Night Speaks to a Woman he started conducting the audience for a long period of time and um, Ciro you know would do all these kind of like vocal affectations and stuff like that and Trey would just, was like getting the um the crowd to do it and stuff so this that run of four shows to me that's like in a com compact you know like three-year career that's like the full 95 of tab right there um yeah. and, the, and the crazy thing that you know when you bring up all these hand signals and how they were able to like take the groove in different places and stuff like that it's wild to look back at the recordings from this tour and see that like almost every night you, you see like multiple, like 25, 35 minute jams. It was just nothing for them. They just did it like once a set, at least. We should say that Bonnaroo, man, the, the fact that they were able to pull off 
Bonnaroo the first time and had, had this, you know, kind of culmination is amazing. And then, you know, obviously you know what, what happened to Bonnaroo as it grew. It's pretty amazing, especially because again, shout out to Festival Circuit. We got to talk with Rick Farman, one of the founders of Superfly, which put on Bonnaroo and they started, you know, as club promoters in New Orleans and they took a lot of inspiration from the Jazz Vest and from New Orleans and started Bonnaroo. And it's like, man, amazing what that grew into, you know? Yeah, I was actually, as part of this, trying to refresh my memory, and I watched the DVD from the first Bonnaroo, um, and I remember, you know, I can't, I, I honestly can't remember why I didn't go to that first Bonnaroo, because it was a big deal that it was happening. Um, I think it was just a money thing or something. Um, uh, I'll go back and slap my 20-year-old self in the face <laughs> and then hand him a $100 bill and say, go. Yeah, exactly. um, go. But uh, it was like a huge deal that it, like there were these small you know, regional kind of hippie festivals. And there was the big fish festivals. This was the first time that like, they literally got every jam band out there in the same place at the same time. And when you look at like the lineup now, like it's insane. Like you, this would never happen again to have all of those artists together. Yeah, it's crazy. So, so Bonnaroo closed out their summer tour, June 23rd. And then they they picked up their fall tour in Burlington in October. And October 24th, 2002, I actually saw them in Portland because I was working on my first political campaign. And I happened to make friends with the press secretary who, of course, was a Fish fan. And I was living in Bangor, Maine, two hours from Portland for about six months. And I knew that this woman, Deborah, who's still a friend, was was a Fish fan. And we got tickets and we went to this show at the Portland Expo. And I'll never forget that show just because it was like, I was in the middle of a campaign where you work, you know, 16 hours a day trying to get a woman elected to the U.S. Senate. And then, you know, we took, we took the evening and went to, uh, the Portland Expo to, uh, to, to hang out. And it was really cool. And it's the only, it's only the second time that, that Trey's played there. Fish's show, February 3rd, 1993, which I've talked about a ton on this show is from the Portland Expo. And that's where that's the first show where, um, Paige had his baby grand where they debuted a ton of riff songs. So then this was the only other time. And this show was actually moved from the Cumberland County civic center to the Portland Expo because they wanted a smaller venue. So it was cool to see there. And I'll never forget that show just because I was in the middle of like a not music seeing world. It's the only show I saw in six months. And, um, I'll, I'll remember that show, but I don't remember it being like particularly notable in terms of the jams, but I'm sure that they were on fire at that point. Did you yeah. see it that fall? I, yeah. And I, I saw, um, the show at Stabler arena at, uh, Lehigh university in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, um, which was good. It was notable. Um, my memory of that show is that, um, this was the, the venues were scaled back a little bit on this tour. So this, you know, they were playing like 15 to 25,000 seat sheds on the summer. Once again, like good sized crowds, not full, not, not sold out. Um, but you know, you mentioned a, a downsized arena for the Portland show, Stabler arena, you know, held like, I think maybe 5,000 people. Um, that was packed cause it was a Saturday night and it was halfway between Philly and New York. So, um, that was a, a pretty hot ticket, but the crazy thing about this tour was that that right before the tour started, they announced the MSG return shows for fish right. at the end of the year. And so it was like, 
and by this point, t- tickets had gone on sale and everybody knew how crazy it was going to be. So I remember being at this tray show and nobody was looking for tickets for the tray show. Everybody had their finger in the, in the air asking for fish tickets because all the tickets had sold out. Um, so that was, it was just like all of the attention was there and we happened to be at a tray show. Um, I think the highlight of this tour was the closing night of the tour, um, or maybe not the closing night, but um, the end of the tour, they played in Atlanta at the Tabernacle. Um, and this had another Night Speaks to a Woman that was like really long and where Trey Two kind of like conducted. Set. Yeah, exactly. So this is, um, yeah, Night Speaks, super, super, super long Night Speaks to a Woman. So they kind of, you know, recreated some of what they had done at, uh, at Bonnaroo and a little bit more elaborately this time. But um, it was like, at this point, you know, the, that's why I say that summer 2000 tour was kind of magical because Fish ha- Fish wasn't coming back yet. The band was like really, really tight, had great material, was killing it every night, and people weren't preoccupied by Fish. So there was a really engaged Trey uh, Trey band audience. It, you know, in this day and age, there's only one or two bands that would do a one song set. I feel like Umphreys has done it or could do it. Spafford maybe has done it or could do it, but but that's it. But a, a two-song set, I mean, that's pretty fucking awesome. This is this is every Fish fan's dream. So if you haven't heard these shows, you need to go back to this because this is Night Speaks to a Woman opener, Drifting Closer, and that's set too. So that's pretty cool.
So Matt, we go from 2002, we jump forward to 2003, and again, like of course, Fish Fish has a lot of touring in 2003 from you know the obviously the winter tour in February, which is which is phenomenal, and I think a lot of this playing, which we should talk about, you know, a lot of the tab stuff helped keep Trey just like super engaged, right? I mean, this was this was a big factor in them being coming back with fire. Yeah. And it, this was a very interesting tour because as you mentioned, this was in the middle of fish mania with them coming back. Every show that fish played in, you know, the winter of 2003 was an impossible ticket. Um, the, the summer shows had all pretty much sold out too. And, um, and in this, in the middle of all of this, Trey announces a run of shows with the Trey Anastasio band in clubs. So they've downsized the venues. Once again, they kind of get to like the, the, venues that tab still plays today. Um, so I remember, for example, seeing them, um, on the, at the electric factory in Philly. I, I was mm-hmm. in like the, I was on the rail, um, which was like crazy, crazy, crazy experience, but they basically, it was a short thing. They did Hammerstein, the electric factory, the Warfield, um, Denver, uh, the Chicago theater, and then the Memorial in Burlington, um, over the course of like two weeks. And then that was it. And, and it was fish from that pretty much from that point forward. So, I mean, tab takes a pretty big break at this point, right? Like you, you don't see tab again until 2010. Well, what what happens here is, um, I mean, they played this run of shows, which, by the way, we should call out the Warfield show um, with San- Carlos Santana sitting in. Never heard um, of him. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's like some blues guitarist from San Francisco. He's um, the guitarist for Trey, another band. Trey did him a favor. Um, yeah, I think he, <laughs> doesn't he play guitar in Foreigner? Yeah. I don't know. But um, he has, so that's a really, really good show. And that was actually um, released on DVD too. Uh, so you can catch that one. Right. I believe that was also the night that Trey called out and talked about going on Fantasy Tour. Um, had shared his experience about going on fantasy tour and oh, man. referred to it as like the same five assholes <laughs> talking over and over again. Um, what, what's the jam from that Santana sit in? Oh, the way I feel um, yeah. was real. was crazy.
then, so they they don't tour again. This incarnation of the band doesn't tour again. Um, there's a little bit of a footnote, um, which is that the following summer, they did two shows to bookend the summer. They played at Bonnaroo. They headlined the Sunday night at Bonnaroo again. And that was a show that the first set was Trey with the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. If you listen to the recent Under the Scales episode with Don Hart, Don talks about how this was the first time that he met and worked with Trey, was putting together the... Yeah. Um, the uh, the orchestra pieces for this set and tray conducting an orchestra on in front of ninety thousand people at Bonnaroo, which I was not there, but I heard was a little bit of a, a weird vibe. Um, and then the second set of just like Rage and Tab, and then Fish goes out and plays their final shows and breaks up, and then like a month after Coventry, these guys played at the Austin City Limits Festival. And, um, that's it. They're, they're gone. Um, tr- the, after this point, uh, you know, the, the following winter is the debut of the 70 volt parade and Trey moving in a different direction. He pretty much scraps everybody from this band, except for Christine or, uh, Jen Hartswick. Um, and, uh, eventually starts to bring some of the folks back over, over the course of the next few years. And then, um, there's, a similar kind of lineup um, for what's called the Undectet, um, which did a very, very quick run right after Trey got arrested. Um, they play, I saw them on that run. They played the 930 Club. They played the Orpheum in Boston. And then they played the two shows at the House of Blues in AC, which came out as that original boardwalk style. Um, but this is not the true tab. It's kind of a hybrid of um, the 70 volt parade and tab because you have Tony Hall on bass. You've got Jeff Sipe on drums, Christina Durfee singing along with some of the other um, tab alums like Ciro and Peter Affelbaum and, and, and cats like that. So not truly that lineup, um, but he starts, you can see at this point before his kind of hiatus for a couple of years that he was moving away from the 70 volt parade experiment um, I guess we'll call it and mm-hmm. in back towards this horn driven kind of outfit um, that that later evolves a little bit further so what was the 2005 setup so the 2005 setup was the 70 volt parade that was all 70 volt okay yeah got it because yeah. I saw the, I saw a show in Richmond um, that f- fall maybe um uh, yeah i saw 2005 yep i saw them at bonnaroo i saw them in philly i want to say i think i maybe saw them at the tower i saw them three or four times um i will say i don't think we're going to be doing a 70 volt parade episode anytime soon um if we're going to be not too rude about it let's li- let's live in the moment of the beautiful beautiful tap yeah and that's why i say it's it's it, because of everything that happened after that, I think because of the 70 volt parade, which had a somewhat universally, um, you know, disapproving response from the audience. And I think, you know, I mean, 
looking at the evidence, it seems like Trey wasn't too happy about it himself because he replaced members along the way during the tour. I mean, that you don't you don't do that if your band is really cooking and you're happy with them. So, um, I think you know things weren't exactly working, and then of course he had his personal troubles right after this. Um, he, you know, and then he comes back and reforms Tab with new members and stuff like that. So I feel like, you know, the things that happened around that time, like 2005, 2006, 2007, um, kind of like muddy people's, um, you know, remembrance of how great that original Tab band was that, you know, over the course of, um, you know, just over two years, really, um, you know, about what, like 27, 28 months or so kicked ass and became a really, really amazing touring outfit um, that I, I kind of wish that they'd been able to keep going that way. But um, I am obviously happy that, you know, Fish got back to it in 2003 as well. Yeah. What's um what's your like looking back at it now and having revisited this stuff? What, what are your takeaways from this this era? Um, that they could jam so I, I think it was like we talk all the time about like fish from like 94, 95 when they were figuring things out and then kind of locking in. And I see a lot of parallels when I go back and listen to this stuff, like the earlier shows in 2001. And so like they're trying things and they're being adventurous and whatnot. Um, but it's not until like 2002 that they understand like, oh, this is how we actually make that work. And like the horn players would come up with lines in the middle of the jams, but like maybe they weren't the best thing. But by the end of, you know, by Bonnaroo in 2002, they can anticipate like, okay, here's where Trey is taking this thing. And here's how we come back in with a punch and make it awesome. And Trey realizes, oh, you know, I've got these hand signals. I can change the key of the band on a dime or I can have members drop out and I can, you know, have a lot more of a sonic palette to work with. Um, It's interesting to to hear that evolution um, throughout the time. And I also like just personally in, in my preference for that reason have always tended to just like go back to summer 20, 2002 and listen to those shows listening to some of the 2001 stuff was actually really enlightening to see that it wasn't as like i don't want to say boring because that's a you know it's not a great word but like just like lacking in like excitement or creativity as i kind of thought in my my memory yeah, that's totally fair. And I appreciate this. It was fun to talk about this because, like I said at the beginning, I think this is like a little bit overlooked by a lot of fans, at least by me. So I had fun going back. And the band was really tight. I mean, in, in 2001 and 2002. Yeah. Like the, the Obviously, the horn charts, like all that stuff that had been worked out was really, really good. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, there was in like any trade project, like obviously well thought through, well executed, um, and really cool to go back to. So, um, hope everybody out there enjoyed it. And um, anything else, Matt? No, um, I think that uh, it's it's good that we finally got to talk to this, talk about this because we've been. Um talking about it for so long and um let us know you know if if this inspires you to go back in and listen to some old tab shows let us know what you're listening to share your thoughts and um you know hopefully we can keep the conversation going on on twitter and whatnot yeah for sure and keep the keep the facebook messages and emails and everything else coming because uh we want to read more of them like we did uh on our last couple episodes it's been fun so all right matt thanks for guiding us through this deep dive into into tab yeah Likewise. All right. And everyone out there, if you like listening to the Helping Friendly Podcast, give us a review on 
Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we'll see you all soon, and we're going to have Jonathan and Brad back, and I think we're going to do something awesome next time. I don't know what that'll be, but I think it'll be awesome. I agree. Do you agree, Matt? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sense awesomeness. <laughs> awesomeness is on the horizon. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. Keep on rocking. What's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Paisen and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.